do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Region Ag is really, really, really hard. Something we don't talk about often enough when we see the shiny farms, pictures, movies, and documentaries. So today, an interview with the founders of Grounded, who we interviewed four years ago, about the good, the bad, and the ugly of Region Ag. Five-year droughts, losing 70% of your crops, and buyers who don't honor their agreements. Plus, of course, lessons learned. What is currently working really well? And what is Grounded launching soon in the Regen ingredient space? And their big realization when it comes to working with and investing in smallholder farmers. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture. Investing as if the planet mattered podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash investingregionag or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome for another episode. And today we have two guests that we had previously on the show, Teklach Teunus and Gijs Boers, founders of Grounded. We had them in March 2017, so almost four years ago. And it's time for an update, actually many updates. I'm very, very happy to have them back on the show. Welcome, Teklach and Gijs. Thanks, Koen. Thanks for having us again, Koen. And just to set the stage a bit for people, obviously I will link to the previous interview we did in the show notes below, but could you briefly introduce Grounded back in the day? And, and then, of course, we're going to talk about Grounded currently in 2021. Yeah, I can actually um, take a step at that. I think maybe your Grounded back in the day in 2017, it was, I think, Gijs and me and a few people, and we had established a project in the Bavians Clove in South Africa, where we were trying to restore a degraded landscape together with some NGOs that we were working with and with the farmers there. And we had just started to see if we could replicate some of our approaches there in other areas, in Zambia and in another area in South Africa. And since then, the organization has progressed quite a lot and also maybe changed. But I think still to our core, what we do is that we work with farmers to help them to transition into regenerative agriculture. We build companies that take their produce, process them if necessary, and then bring them to market. And um, yeah, so we then also actually help buyers access the produce from the farmers. So that's in a nutshell, maybe what we do. In essence, that hasn't changed, but I think the execution has completely changed. Yes. Based on many, many lessons. That's the biggest difference. I think we were very optimistic at that moment. We've over, Tekla actually and the team, they overcome a lot of hurdles in the Baviaans Close to raising investment, first planting, 
Yeah, let's talk about that one because that was the project we mentioned a lot last time. What was the original idea and what has it pivoted, morphed or emerged into you? And now you're still partly involved, but let's, let's take us through the journey of the Bavian's Club because I think it's a great example of a lot of lessons learned and what we can take away from that and what you obviously bring to other landscapes now. Yeah, so the original idea in the Bavian's Club, so it's a sort of semi-arid landscape where the predominant farming method was grazing goats, extensive grazing, so in mountains, like on thousands of hectares. But a lot of the mountain land was severely degraded because of overgrazing, actually not by the farmers who are there now, but already like over generations this had been happening. And it was identified by ecologists as a very important biome, also because of its potential to capture carbon, actually. So there's like a, a keystone species there called speckbome, which... Um, which is a tree. It's a tree, exactly. And you can plant it from cuttings and it showed really good results in like initial restoration efforts. So the idea was to help those farmers restore their lands using as part of that maybe um, like speckbone, this, this tree. And then we as Grounded came in to see, okay, can we actually also ensure that that sort of makes economic sense for the farmers to do. So instead of we just plant trees on their degraded land, but they continue with their goat farming practices as they've been doing previously, that would not make a lot of sense because then the goats could come in again and eat the trees and then, you know, there's just zero effect. So what we started doing is seeing, okay, is there a way to actually transform the farming system entirely? And that was, I think, in hindsight, maybe overly ambitious. Especially the word <laughs> entirely. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> because then we came up with a plan to for the farmers to transition away from goat farming and towards essential oils. So we set up a company that would enable the farmers to grow crops like lavender and rosemary in the area and process them locally and then sell them. And then the farmers signed like holistic land management plans that they promised to take their goats off the land in return for like all kinds of benefits that they would receive through this company. And so we started off very optimistically because we thought this is going to be great. And ambitiously. I mean, this is yeah. like going from goat farming to farming rosemary is a step, let's say, a huge step. So that is a step, but then we added an extra step on top of that because we thought that's not enough. Like we're also going to do it organic. And they hadn't been growing organic before, so they had like zero experience on that. So, yeah, but we thought, no, this is, it should be relatively easy. You know, the, <laughs> the advisors told us, like, the numbers look great. The agronomist said, no, these crops will grow fantastically in the area. Maybe good to know that the essential oils industry in South Africa is very small. So the amount of advice that we could get was sort of limited. So it was a little bit like pioneering, but everything on paper looked fantastic. Your spreadsheets looked amazing. Your PowerPoints looked amazing. Yeah. And it looked even better if we made it really big, <laughs> you know? <laughs> if you added a few zeros here and there and moved some commas exactly. around. Yeah. So the bigger, the better, basically. And also the faster, the better. Of course, in your spreadsheet, you know, then your returns just <laughs> great. Now, okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was like, we were really optimistic. And so we started off planting lavender, or at least the farmers did that. And then actually immediately came, like stumbled on a few 
challenges there. It was much harder than we thought to get the lavender plants to actually grow in that landscape. Planted rosemary as well, which did a lot better. But then one rosemary field got clapped by a a pest and 70% disappeared again. So on the growing side, we had challenges. And you did a bit, I mean, it was big. This wasn't a few, like half a hectare here and there. This was a lot of hectares. No, we started with 100 hectares, which I wouldn't, if anybody is listening, I would not recommend starting off any kind of project with 100 hectares. Maybe start off with like half a hectare or something or one, maybe maximum five, but not as many as we did. Also because it's just much more difficult to manage 10 hectares than a half, you know. Yeah, plus your financial risk is way bigger, obviously. So, yeah, maybe long story short, eventually, yeah, it was actually, it was a really tough process. Because as you can imagine, the farmers put a lot of time and effort into making this work, as did I. And like the rest of the team, we worked like really, really hard. But eventually we had to come to the conclusion that all the lavender fields that we had established, which I think was about 60 hectares or something, I don't remember exactly, we had to write them off because it was just impossible to get it to grow. The rosemary, on the other hand, did really well. But there we found out that the variety that we planted actually didn't get the highest prices in the market for the oil. And there was another variety which was much more attractive which we then started planting as well. And those are still actually doing fairly okay. Yeah, we will get to the ingredient part and the buyer part and the markets, etc. But what would be the biggest takeaways, I think, is uh, one of the biggest is starting smaller or, or not being overly optimistic in terms of size, but anything else that you really want listeners to hear? I mean, obviously, you wrote a number of really interesting blog posts, which I will link below, because you basically... I took apart all the lessons learned of the Bavians Clothes and of others. But as a biggest takeaway, Gijs, what do you want the listeners of the podcast to know about this project and what they maybe won't have to go through? The biggest takeaway, and I raise my hand here, is I think we work with farmers, farmers that are really ready to go through change. We mixed it up with teams, with people, with all sorts of knowledge. So we had a wide group of people supporting us. Everybody was on track. And if you then see how difficult it is to get through that transition, now imagine that all these farmers have to go through this transition. Everywhere in the world, we hope to see these farmers completing this transition. And I think to me, the biggest takeaway is all these hurdles in between. We still strongly believe in region agri, but seeing the perfect examples that you see today, how they work, they have made that transition, they are there. They were maybe in a certain spot or certain area that favored the conditions to make that transition. But in the Baviaanskloof, the conditions are not very favorable for that path. And to me, that is the biggest takeaway. You know, if you we've exposed our success directly to the success of the farmers. And that working with them and trying to make the complete death transition even if you mix bringing all outside knowledge and, and everybody's on the same page and everybody works day and night to get there. And then still you make, everybody must make some of these mistakes. So to get through the transition and complete it, I think that's the biggest challenge. And that I think is something we're focusing on. It's not, it's the focusing on making that transition work. And then especially for us as grounded in an African context often. I think I can maybe add some, like, give some specifics to things which were actually difficult. 
I mean, the weather, obviously. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, the weather. So, this is actually quite a significant thing because when we started there, it was five years ago, and we didn't know back then, but that was actually going to be the start of a drought, which still lasts until today, and which is a horrible drought. The farmers have never seen the water levels this low. It's actually a little bit scary. They need rain at some point now because this is... Yeah, you mentioned it's semi-arid, but soon it's going to be arid. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And without water, nothing grows. No. So, for example, in the first two years when we started, we had 90, so nine zero millimeters of rain over a period of two years, which is like a desert kind of environment. And the effects you see then is like, so for regenerative agriculture to work, you want to build up life in the soil, but that helps if you can actually then have stuff growing on the soil as well. You know, these things like interact. So how do you, for example, plant or establish cover crops if you have no water? You know, this is something which is <laughs> like maybe sounds a bit trivial, but was a, a real challenge. So then you do get more challenges with weeds, for instance, if there are no cover crops to uh, like. So it all sort of then interlinks. And in this case, it wouldn't have made sense to look at historical data because this is a, an historical drought, which you wouldn't have been able to predict. Exactly. So you're going in blind, basically, in many of these places. Exactly. Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, that is just, and yeah, now it's actually so dire that they've had to even stop irrigating some of the rosemary fields, which I listened to our previous podcast and then I was like proudly saying like, oh, this is all very water resilient because the farmers now use 10 times less water than they used previously. But now there's so little water that they don't even have enough water for this. And then, of course, like if external condition like that beats you, then there's just, you know, very little can, you can do. Although I must say on the positive side that despite this drought, the farmers have actually like, okay, because when you get a little bit of rain, then you can quickly plant cover crops, etc. And they have now transitioned into regenerative agriculture, and that is actually working fantastically. The farmers are super excited about it. Yeah, what's the current situation from, let's say, the, the pessimistic of what went wrong, because many things did, but what's the current where a number of years in, you're, I think you just went to the Bavians Globe. Like, what did you see and what's the current, even though there's been an historic drought, what's happening in the field, on the field, in the soil? Yeah, so... On the soils, it's amazing. Actually, I like I stood on a plot where a farmer had like applied regenerative and then right next to it, he hadn't done that. And the difference is just incredible. And what was the difference then? What kind of approaches or methods? So on the one field, he had implemented like a compost tea, all sorts of like a cover crop mix. So they had actually implemented a full regenerative program. We had a guy who was the general manager who was like very much involved in this and who, look, I'm not the expert, so I can't give you the details, unfortunately, but it worked really well. So all the farmers make their own compost tea on the land. They can put it directly into the irrigation systems. That works very well if they can irrigate. 
And then, yeah, these cover crops also. So you can just see the effect in the soil. And that is only like after one or two years. So it's actually nice. The farmers can also see immediate benefits. It's a much more closed loop system. They don't need to get inputs from outside, especially if you need organic inputs, they can get super expensive. So the farmers are happy about that as well. They've still got the rosemary fields, which despite the fact that they can't irrigate are still standing. They don't grow as well, but they're surviving. So hopefully when they get rain, you know, they'll get like better yields again. And they process those into oil as well as a part of it is dried and is used in the food ingredient industry as a preservative. There's a molecule in rosemary, it's called carnosic acid, that's used as a food preservative. And actually, they now found a a market for just uh, dried herbs. So that's actually sort of working, like despite a lot of things. Maybe another anecdote on this is that carnosic acid, if you have a very healthy soil, a healthy plant, and then you put it under a lot of stress, then that carnosic acid is like a protection mechanism of that plant. So if you have a very healthy plant and the more carnosic acid, you would say the more value that product has to the industry. So we had buyers to prom- that promised to us a green company say, well, we want to more organic sourcing. So they said, we're going to help you and we're going to pay you for the improved quality. And two years later, after all the hurdles, all the challenges, all the mistakes, the farmers actually said, give us two years and they delivered. And then that company backed off. Later on, it turned out to be a huge fraud scandal at that company. <laughs> but so you're saying this, the healthier the soil, the more of this specific piece or it has to be stressed as a because of the drought yeah it's a combination so first a healthy plant and then put it under stress but it has to do with a lot of factors so the right variety for this it has to do with the right plant the right harvesting times indeed when it's under stress and also the right processing so it's difficult to say it's just the soil is just that it's a combination of uh, factors that improve that plant's defense mechanism and that's what they uh, later on extract from it and obviously you figured this out in the last years because it's not that you go in we're going to do essential oils and you already have this as a plan b or something no this is something you happen to find out on the road sometimes you have a bit of luck and then you need to capitalize on that luck and that then didn't happen and now there's another company a family business and they say yeah we first want to have a couple of batches and see if we really can get it out of it and if it really works but then they say yeah but we actually need volumes and then it takes another two years to get to the volumes they want and so you know in the meantime we've completely the business itself so we see the transition on the farmers but the business itself has had so many hits after hits after hits and that's that's difficult to hang in there while you try to get from small success to bigger successes and you need not make so many mistakes as us and you also need a bit of luck from time to time because if that buyer would have been there at that moment when it said it would be there yeah, they would pay an, and an organic premium and a premium for the quality of the product that it would have been amazing that would have been closing the business deal and be the proof of a successful company and that's then again delayed by two years And afterwards, you say, yeah, you should have gone for alternative buyers quicker. But they gave us also such a good impression and really committed that we could ask them anything. And probably the people in that business that were talking to us were excited. So it's not even the persons in that business. I think it's a great bridge to the ingredient side of things, like what you learn there and how you're, and also the buyer side and the marketplace. Like, it's amazing if you can grow 
a lot of fields of rosemary in healthy soils, but then what do you actually do with it? Like it needs to be not too big, not too small, this kind of ingredient, this kind of color, this kind of weight, this kind of color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for many farmers, that's simply too complicated, whatever they're growing. So have you seen not only in the Bavianslo, but also in the other landscapes you're working in on that? How do you get it to a proper buyer for a proper price? Like what are the big lessons there? Yeah, I think... In the end, of course, it's also all about your quality, right? So you can have amazing soils, but you're not selling the soil. <laughs> so it can be a fantastic regenerative landscape, but then you still need to get the specs of your product right, especially if you want to get a premium price. And there we've seen that that just takes time, especially if you're entering a new market, for instance, in the case with this rosemary Right now, they've got a fantastic product. So the feedback that they're getting on the oil is really good. And then you see like, okay, so it takes actually a long time from establishing till when you actually get demand from the buyers and your product is good enough and then people get come back to you and they refer you to other buyers. But it takes four or five years, basically. Exactly. So it requires, I think, a lot more patience than we would have thought it would take. But I still believe that it's, actually an interesting model for that area like that business could still work because especially now they've got a good product they've got the growing uh, going there is a market so this could work then the next challenge is actually what we've come across is like what guys already mentioned previously uh, previously is sort of the mismatch between the skill that you're producing and the skill that the buyer wants like I just mentioned, like don't start with super big production because then you can make too many mistakes. But now the challenge is then you get a buyer who says, okay, this is really nice oil. I would love to buy a ton. <laughs> and then they say, okay, no, but we don't have a ton. We've got 200 kg, you know, and we can get you a ton, but they're going to be then in whatever two years time or something. And then the buyer says, okay, no, that's fine. And I'll go to another producer somewhere else. And so that cycle is almost a little bit chicken and egg because you need to have the product to get the buyer because nobody's going to buy if you don't have like a sample, for example. <laughs> but then once you have the buyer, you don't have enough of the product. So this is kind of a, a tricky loop. So with all your experience now in different landscapes, what could be a solution or what is a solution you're working on or how do you fix a chicken and egg? Well, firstly, I think if you're on a farm, you produce different qualities as well, especially in the transition. So it is key, I think, that farmers that produce a better quality, they can access a market to that. And there's also a commodification of products. So we pay for a minimum standard, but not for a higher standard. And at the same time, this wholesale industry in the middle is critical, plays a critical role in capturing, uh, processing all the mass products that are there. So we have to take a step somewhere in that wholesale arm as well, and especially seeing if we can get a bit of upside of maybe 10 or 20% of the produce of some businesses or farmers or farmers that maybe have a produce smaller volumes, as Tecla explained, but at a better quality, connect that to buyers interested in that better quality. And I think that's where a missing link is. And it's not saying that we can overcome that as an organization. This is big. This is a big infrastructure challenge that's holding back Regen Agri in general. But I think we would like to, uh, to contribute that and be a part of that transition, be a part of that movement and play a role there as well. So I think, Tekla, <laughs> over to you. Or... <laughs> yeah, what we see is maybe there's almost a mismatch 
or there are two groups that don't find each other as easily, which could be a, t a solution to this problem, partially maybe. So the, the one group is actually maybe smaller, medium-sized brands with a very authentic story and product. And that segment is actually growing rapidly. That's driving growth in consumer goods industries. So it's actually not an insignificant size of the total market. Do you have examples of brands you can disclose? You're talking to our brands that people know too. So they're not super big. They're definitely not tiny. And they have an appetite for good stories and hopefully good quality. Exactly. So there's a lot of, for instance, brands here in South Africa that your listeners might not know, but it's like Sunbird Tea and maybe like slightly bigger ones that they might know, but those are already more established, but it's like Lush or Pukka Tea, things like that. But those I wouldn't really call small. I think the smaller ones are more localized actually. So they would be specific. They wouldn't have maybe expanded internationally yet. And they could, they are looking for players like yourself and for ingredients that you can give them access to. So what they are often looking for is ingredients which are produced sustainably and with like high ethical principles. And ideally, a lot of them, I think, would like to show transparency to their customers on where they get their ingredients from. But for the, a lot of these, especially smaller brands, it's difficult to get access to those ingredients because they would either have to approach all the farmers individually and then get the stuff. It's expensive, logistical nightmare, takes a lot of time and effort. Or they have to get, go to like your traditional wholesalers, but then you lose the story and you often don't even know where your product actually comes from. So we spoke to quite a lot of those small brands and they actually said to us, uh, wouldn't you be able to help us get access to those ingredients? The reason why we spoke to them initially was because we thought we were going to establish our own brand. <laughs> I remember those discussions. Yeah, yeah, as actually as a way to capture better value for the farmers. But then we figured, oh, there are actually so many brands. We might as well position ourselves like sort of one level lower and instead actually help them get access to these ingredients because we are connected to the farmers. At the same time, the farmers, for them, it's really interesting to sell to those brands because often they will get lower volumes, which we just spoke about, especially if you're just transitioning to regenerative. That's super interesting. The quantity of quality you have might be not a ton, but a few hundred kilos here and there. Exactly. And, and it grows over time, hopefully, but you're not stabilized yet. You don't have a stable production of high quality. Exactly. Plus, these brands are often also a little bit less critical to the exact specifications of their ingredients. So the more bigger, more established brands want to have exactly these like chemical specifications because their product needs to be uniform all the time. Whereas the smaller ones are, or can offer a lot more flexibility, which also provides great opportunities for these producers. Plus they can actually pay a better price often because they will value the impact that's been created. But it's sort of like I, what I just explained, there's an inefficiency in the system, like for these two to come together. Because also for the farmers, it doesn't make sense to now go phone every small brand and try to sell them like half a kilogram of oil. Hey, do you want to buy some XYZ? Yeah. So this is actually something which we are busy now with, which we're very excited about because we're actually going to launch a online platform in May. We're going to do a pilot here in South Africa. 
where we bring these two together. So where we offer ingredients from great producers that we know that grow regeneratively. So it's our own produce, like the operating companies that we established, but also other companies that we found that meet our standards. And then offer the brands an opportunity to basically buy directly from those producers. So basically a wholesale ingredient, a regenerative wholesale ingredients platform. Exactly. And that could really speed up the transition of a lot of them. And then do they sort of like the farmers, do they between brackets graduate from that? Like at some point, if I am at that, like I'm standardly hitting the high quality mark, do I outgrow these brands? Some of them maybe do. And what happens then? Yeah, hopefully, because like that would ultimately also be interesting for us. We also like apart from this platform. So this is like one distribution channel that we're having. The other channel like which we use to generate sales is actually more direct sales. So for the larger buyers, the platform, we don't really see it as a method. It's more based on the connections that we have in the industry. So indeed, if they have like larger volumes and they can meet quality standards, then we can actually also help facilitate those deals or they can find those deals themselves, of course. So that's going to go live in May, specifically on South Africa. But obviously, I'm imagining you're planning beyond that for some ingredients that are easily that's easily shipped, transported and light. Um, very exciting. You That's basically four or five years of experience coming together in a in a very specific solution that could, at least in the transition piece that we were mentioning before, solve a lot of things to get at least some of the higher quality stuff to some buyers for a good price. Yeah, we're super excited about this. Also because it provides us with good opportunities to scale our experience and our model, I think, because we will be able, we think, like you mentioned, the South African market for this is relatively small, but it allows us to set up the platform Actually, with our own means as well, we don't need any external investments yet. So, And then we can test it, see how it works, and then bring it to other markets. And it's also a great way, actually, to get access to more producers and then provide those producers because our vision is that we can then actually provide those producers with support to transition towards like better regenerative agricultural practices. So some of them might be at the beginning of a journey, and then we can help them to sort of progress. And what kind of products, what kind of ingredients would be predominantly on there for the beginning? Like what are the main ingredients coming off the landscapes, from the landscapes you're working in or with the producers you're working with? Yeah, so we're starting with the segments in which we have experience from our own landscapes indeed. So it's going to be essential oils and carrier oils, so seed oils, tea and herbs and spices initially. We might add some other segments later on, but we'll see. I think those are sufficient for now. And it's very interesting cross-pollination amongst those segments because those are the ingredient segments. And then the customer segments that we're targeting are the cosmetics industry, ready-to-drink, botanical drinks, those kinds of things, tea, spices. But they actually use ingredients from the different categories that I just mentioned So in a tea, you can use spices, for instance. In a cosmetics formulation, you can use a tea. So yeah, it's like these segments, we also chose them because there are synergies amongst them and because they are relatively high value and durable. So they're non-perishable, which makes our operations slightly more easy to handle, especially given the fact that we're in like remote locations. So we don't need a cold chain or something like that. Yeah, which would change everything. And to shift gears a bit, because we have 
also discussed last time, you just started to work, I think, in Zambia. We discussed it briefly with smallholder farmers, very different setting, completely different setting compared to the Bavians Clove or the other landscapes you're working in, in in South Africa. But what had, I mean, a lot has happened there, I know. But let me ask the question, what has happened there, I think specifically to Gijs, with the project there, you're still very involved, but it has completely evolved. Yeah, it's been an, an, a very long trajectory there. But the starting point was a large training scheme operated by one of our partnering NGOs where they uh, provided small support packages, seed and training to a lot of small farmers in that area. Something we've seen many times. We've seen many times. And this was connected to what they call conservation agriculture, like basic region agri. So rotations, different crops, compost, etc. And the first thing we've looked at, also when we spoke, we had different models in mind. But after the Bavians Club, we thought, okay, no, let's not make a radical transition. So the first step was to increase the package sizes to those farmers and see if we could take off some of the extra produce again and sell that off at a better price. So we figured it out. The smallest peanut butter in Zambia, great. Great to make. And actually, the smallest peanuts were more higher valued in Zambia. The bigger peanuts were higher valued in the Netherlands. We had an amazing company that wanted to take care of our logistics and uh, reprocessing. So again, on paper, that makes sense. But there were... Firstly, let's talk about our biggest mistake there is that when you increase those packages to the small farmers, we saw huge difference between smallholder farmers. So that was one of our biggest insights there, I think. You mean differences in how they responded to the bigger package of... Indeed, how they responded to the, how they take it on. So how they were able to translate that higher package in more production, in a more efficient production. So you've seen maybe 10% of the farmers were able to take on that bigger package and really translate that in higher production. I won't go into detail. We've written blogs about it, but it's complex to scale. Labor is uh, scarce and it's a labor-intensive system. Many farmers were older farmers and it makes a lot of sense to grow your own food, but going beyond that has some complexities. So... Basically, what we've seen there in Zambia, the biggest transition we've done after two years of trials, and obviously we lost 90% of all the crops to to drought as well. So it's hard to measure exactly how bad we would have done in a normal year. But what we've seen now, what we're trying there now is to get what you see is a, a region farm works, you know, the more integrated it is, taking up business models. So we're getting more high variety farm. But we're going to invest ten to $15,000 packages in, let's say, the top 5%. So you're really selecting for like the top percentage of the farmers, which is a huge shift from let's give everybody a, a package. No, that's huge. And there's already a lot of support from NGOs from small packages to small farmers. And then there is a lot of investment going into bigger farms, bigger investment, bigger projects. But in between, there's nothing. And the challenge is a lot of people want to see a a million uh, farm programs. And it's not really sexy to say, yeah, there's a million farmers. We we think that million farmers are served well by by some of the NGOs. And and let me be clear, not everybody, but there is a lot going on in that space. And also a lot of good work. The thing is that the next step and what we have tried to build in is that next step, going with a lot of hurdles again, but bringing in that next step. And now we're at a stage to say, okay. We see talent, we see entrepreneurs, we see farmers, and we've read a great study, I think, 
an NGO. It's called Pathways. It's several organizations together. It's also mapped the different roads these farmers can take on their path from being a subsistence, a very small farmer with all the challenges to a more resilient farmer, but also the other ways into the economy they can go. Not all of these million farmers we see are farmers that can become a full-on regenerative farm like we see on the perfect examples on TV. And I think, yeah, that was our insight. And I thought if you want to invest in small farmers, really invest, then you have to do that. And even in a big example often mentioned in Kenya is Twiga. They source from small farmers and they sell to street vendors. They've come to a similar conclusion, say, okay, for us, it, you know, we need to invest more in some of the top farmers. And it's not always a well-received message. From donors, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, and I definitely want to state that their work, the donors, what they are doing, it's not saying that that is not effective. But to say just the step afterwards is often lacking. So it's, it's to phrase that very carefully. But indeed, it's not sexy. And it's also difficult to say, yeah, we're going to invest a lot in you and not so much in another farmer. But that's also the reality. Yeah, let's unpack that. But I think it's a fascinating realization that obviously every investor has already come to you because it's, if you are active in an accelerator, if you're active, I mean, you screen a lot of deals before you invest. Or a lot of entrepreneurs, you meet a lot of teams. Why combinator? I don't know how many they screen before they select someone. And somehow, if we want to invest in smallholder farmers, we don't do any screening. We just sort of basically spray and pray and hope that it will work out. And in this case, it is figuring out which ones actually want to be a farmer, first of all. You wrote a great blog post about that. I will definitely link that as well. Like who wants to be a commercial farmer and who, who sees his or her career and work in that? And many don't, and that's perfectly fine. But as an investor, you don't want to be backing the ones that actually don't want to do what they're doing. And obviously they will move to the city if they can, or they would start doing something else if other economic opportunities open up. So backing the ones that want to be and are able is crucial. Selecting them is not easy, but then, so you're now saying we're investing and you use that word very specifically, $15,000 worth of package in the farmers that want to do more. What does that exactly mean? What do you do? How do you work with them? So we are still doubting how it will exactly the partnership look like. We're trialing now with 15 farmers. But first of all, the biggest challenge is irrigation. Those are the highest investments, especially in the dry areas in Zambia. You have to, if you want to do anything, you need to have water. We believe a lot in the local market. Zambia is center of Africa, so exporting-wise doesn't make sense. But there's huge regional markets, cross-border trades, also in the informal markets. Shortages of a lot of crops during different times of year. For, for uh, crops, I have to say products, uh, vegetables, fruits. And that mixture provides actually a good market to absorb the variety of projects a regenerative system brings. So yeah, it's partnering up with them and then that will go slowly. So first of all, it's the problem with irrigation. If you do it in different locations, it's super expensive. So the bigger area you irrigate, the cheaper it is. So we try to bring some of the best together. We start obviously in a sector where there's already a lot of good ones. So, you know, you don't have to move people whatsoever. And we're going to just try to build a perfect business with several of those business models stacked on top. You know, what you've seen in other of your interviews, they mention it as well. You know, Regen Agri, it's also a couple of business models on top of each other to absorb that diversity. And from there, sell into the, into the regional markets and try to hit specific prices when they are high. And when there's shortages of the market, then try to bring in your produce. That's a high level. The business model is much more to it. But I think it also shows a bit of the 
the transition we have made to, you know, you've started as an impact company. So you first look at impact. And I think over time have to make more and more commercial choices. Also linking, you know, we started in the most degraded area. So with our, you know, original model of setting up these companies for stretch, it's from scratch same thing happens you know we say rather than doing it from scratch in the most degraded areas of to say yeah you start a car dealer on an island where there's no roads it's super difficult but moving more into to finding other entrepreneurs in africa that already taken some steps where our support and our lessons have some value so our previous companies and the companies still in portfolio like zambia are let's say grounded as it was so it was grounded where you know, we build company from scratch to support the transition of a wider landscape. But for us as an agri company to succeed, we need also a lot more businesses in our portfolio that are more viable, can go faster. And I think we've learned to play this game in the toughest, the worst pitches around the world. So there's, I think there might be some value in what we've learned and, and that we can also play the game in a better pitch that we also will do a better job. So one of the examples there is an an amazing Tanzanian spice entrepreneur together with a Dutch spice trader. They joined forces. They set up a company in Tanzania sourcing from small farmers. I think in the first year they got a a half a million euro revenue, which is absurd. But now they need to raise investment. They have been inspired by everything they've seen. That's another thing over the last couple of years. Great work to hold the community because the movement that has been built is amazing, even you know, a spice trader, whole life in spices, 60 years old, has seen it, has inspired to say, I want to set my company up or our company up in a way that it's impacting these farmers in these mountain forests. How can we do that? So, yeah, and, and by accident, you find each other. Not by accident, we went through a whole pipeline <laughs> process. But this is one that's going to... It feels a bit like by accident. Yeah. You sometimes, you force your accidents to happen in so often. But you come across these two persons that are a perfect match, but... They are spice persons, but never have written a business plan or secured external funds, never worked with small farmers and see how they could be served, what packages for what farmers. Our region agri team in Grounded can already help them with combating some of the basic pest problems, which turn out to be sometimes just a timing of irrigation problem. So there's a lot of overlap. And the best thing is they like that we've made so many mistakes. I think that is what resonates between us and many other entrepreneurs. And I think we will be able to get more of these starting businesses to get them to an investment ready stage with our package, with our support in Grounded that we've built over time. So that's, you know, even the the traditional model of Grounded is still there, but even that has changed over the last couple of years a lot. And then what would you be doing with this company in Tanzania? Basically, you're providing support, you help with the business plan, potentially help raising funds. Will you step in as well? How would that, what would the partnership look like? Yeah, so this is like the full-on model, or what we call OPCO model, where we try to raise capital, uh, preferably blended finance, blended also to improve the sourcing and do some pilots with the different type of farmers. So how do you support your different, again, this is a different type of suppliers. How do you support each of them in the best way? And also investment capital, working capital, better processing. The great thing about this is Tanzania is organic by default. So all the farmers are organic. The first farmers will be certified organic. And they have quite a good quality, but that quality is lost now in the processing. So And they make big steps short term. 
A lot of other suppliers in the world are struggling because EU changed their regulations. So you can't use so much pesticide anymore, which is a big problem in spices. You dry them, you know, only 20% of the volume is left. So you see any pesticide residue. So I know for crops, the EU sometimes have to pass them. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have those spices, but just because they can't source them somewhere else. So Tanzania has a great opportunity and all these organic farmers to, to step in there. And it's our role to bring that all together and to support them, telling them the story, go out, go out to the investor network so that they can focus on selling these spices, focus on improving production. And there's so much work that has to be done for this company, you know, both to scale, to grow, but also to leverage its capacity to have such an amazing impact in Tanzania and to nurture that organic farms that are there and, and try to you know, it can go into different directions. You can clear forests and put spices there, but you, spices do very well on the canopy. They do very well in agroforestry. So can we use this company to, again, transfer some of the maize fields into more of an agroforestry spice system? This is not something that will happen, you know, the coming half a year. But if you do it well and you support your farmers, well, I think that over a period of five to 10 years, Tanzania can have an amazing spice industry and leverage that industry so that, yeah, you create great mixed zones, if they call it, in common land in some of those areas. Yeah, and I want to be conscious of your time as well. And I think there's a lot to discuss here and a lot to unpack. And I will definitely be checking in a bit earlier than four years after to see how the different landscapes are evolving. But to end with a, a number of questions I always like to ask to start, I mean, you could both look at that or one of you can answer. I mean, I'll leave that up to you. But what if you would be in charge of a $1 billion investment fund tomorrow morning? What would you prioritize? Where would you dive into? What would be your first investments? And what would be your framework, basically, of making those decisions? Well, very biased. And, um, you know, obviously a bit of what we see is need, but there's a huge finance gap if when it comes to Africa with small SMEs in general, whether it's from small to large farmers or small agribusinesses. We see a lot of very small and a couple of very big. And that's where finance needs to be leveraged for. And it's high risk. But I think a strong segment of medium-sized companies is critical. So that is a big one, for me at least, and also a bit of personal passion. Maybe if I can add, I think, maybe also like following on to our conversation, I think there's a huge gap in the sort of maybe call it like midstream. So in the between the farmers and the brands. The infrastructure, yeah. the, the, the pipeline foods, but then building in Africa. Yeah. So to have, you know, processing facilities, transport, storage, all of that, like to actually get the produce from the producers to the markets. I think that's also a, a big gap. Otherwise, I would just invest it actually in growing grounded. I think if we have one billion, we can become really big. So we can just invest it in all that we just spoke about. Don't go too big too fast. You learn about that. <laughs> no, I know. We would put something on the bank account, like we said, I think, the previous time when you asked this, and then we would just uh, go slowly. And I've asked that before, but what if you could change one thing? Because it has changed, actually, your answer. You have a magic wand. You have a magic power. I would ask it to both of you. What would you overnight change tomorrow morning in the food and agricultural landscape sector. But of course, you can do say something about renewable energy as well if you want to. What would you use your magic power for if you had one wish that you could change? Yeah, I think for us, something that we've realized, which would be amazing if it could be changed, is if, <laughs> this may sound strange, but if not 
um, all the consumer products would taste the same. So if you can actually sort of taste where it comes from, not only in wine, but also in, I don't know, mayonnaise or, well, maybe that's, well, okay, yeah, the eggs might actually taste different every time. Or in a soap that you use. Because this will actually allow for maybe more diversity and quality coming from these landscapes instead of everything having to be blended and further processed into products that can then taste uniform. The butter changes through the season, but that's only a few products probably have that at the moment. I mean, wine is the prime example. Exactly. But everything else has to taste the same, unless you buy it almost straight from the source or very artisanal, but everything in the supermarket has to be always exactly the same. Yeah, and in wine, you celebrate the fact that it's different every time and you know where it comes from, which is fantastic. I mean, they did that brilliantly. I think the wine industry, like, well done for them. But I think many more industries should actually be doing that because it allows for traceability, the story of the farm, then you celebrate the diversity instead of being like, oh, no, this is actually wrong. Punishing it. Yeah. yeah. And the seasons you celebrate are the years, the events that influence taste from year to year. So I think that's also a big one. And now the wholesale industry is trying to put it all on one heap, try to make the same product every year. Whereas in wine, we accept that the one year uh, your uh, um, Barolo wine coon in uh, maybe in Italy, you know, there's good years, bad years, the good years are a bit more expensive. So, um, you know, we can think, drink a Barolo, but maybe not out of that certain years. But that's also, you know, accepting a more natural vibe to it and, and accepting that, that natural change and also enjoying that, that difference. Yeah, that would be, I mean, we've talked about it before, but it would be, it comes down to taste and comes down to not blending probably too much and letting, letting a taste speak for itself, sort of. But it's a... Uh, it seems to be starting like in chocolate and in coffee and in some yeah. bean to bar or like the single origin coffees, etc. It seems to be starting in other places as well, or actually on its way already in certain very niche segments. But we need it also in tomatoes and we need it in rosemary and we need it basically everywhere. Exactly. And final question, what do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't? I mean, we have hit a few actually already. This question is definitely inspired by John Kemp, but I'm very curious about your answer. I would say, and it could also be an answer to your last question, it is difficult to get through the transition. It is super hard. And I think if we all keep on voicing, you know, the benefits, the end system is amazing. And we believe in all the benefits it brings for nature, for people. But that transition is hard. And I think if we don't acknowledge the difficulties, the hurdles, if we... If everybody sees it as that it's easy, maybe for some of them it feels easy. But I know for many of the farmers that actually have to do it, to do it at scale, then I think we have to acknowledge that and be open and transparent about it. Because if we not, we will lose a lot of farmers and we will lose a lot, in your case, uh, very important here, investors that might say, okay, I've tried two times. It doesn't deliver. I haven't seen the results. So I'm out. I've done it. Uh, sealed deal. This doesn't work. And that's what I think we have to be careful for. Have to manage expectations. Yeah, and I think we've been very privileged as grounded to have partners that were always supporting us in our mistakes. So they encourage us to make mistakes and encourage us to be open about those mistakes. And that has allowed us to get through stages that I don't think are impossible to get through if you see some of the mistakes we've made. It's just and that has to do also with the type of support we have, have had from 
every organization involved, for example, like Commandant, you know, never giving up on us. And even the more mistakes we made, the stronger they liked it. It felt they were supporting us, maybe because they felt we needed it. But that's, uh, I think, <laughs> yeah, something to be... They were scared for your survival. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you want that for a lot of organizations, also for farmers to feel that support to get through these hurdles. And yeah, if we can get to that and if everybody can do that, then I think we can deliver on the impact the region agri space promises. Yeah, I also feel like the industry can benefit from a, because it's like new, it's also understandable that everybody who's in it is like trying to say like, this is fantastic. Everybody should do this, you know? Please start with a hundred hectares. Yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, but it's something which you would expect from, I think, a very new field that's also trying to sort of fight its way in, um, in a like a super well-established and well-oiled, very powerful system. But in order for us to now really take it to scale this movement, we need to make sure that together we learn and we don't get stuck in the saying this is fantastic and only showing photos of landscapes that went from brown to green, basically. We need to also show like maybe more the nuances and the things which are hard and thinking about how we can overcome those because I think that's how we can really now take sort of the next step in this field because I also believe it's a solution for many things, but it's not a solution that comes easily. You know, you need to work. <laughs> I think it's a perfect end to this interview. Thank you so much for your time, for your openness and sharing. I will link below to the blog post you've written where there's a lot more info, a lot more lessons learned, a lot more mistakes made. And I'm looking forward to the next one to check in, to see the progress, to talk about the mistakes and to share a lot of your journey, basically. Thank you so much, yeah, uh, Kuna. We promise to don't stop making mistakes so we have enough to share next time. <laughs> exactly. I will hold you to that. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's actually great. It's uh, I listen to it a lot and it's very good to like learn from what's happening all over the world. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much. If you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investing in regenerativeagriculture.com slash course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities, to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investing in regenerativeagriculture.com slash course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.